We are in the uh, Gospel of Luke, if you remember. <laughs> I guess I'm going to treat this kind of like going back to school. I'm going to go, somebody asked me, I think it was Nate asked me this morning, Nate sets things up for us. He said, are you going to go back and start at chapter 1? Uh, no, but I will review back to chapter 1 with regard to this uh, story, if you will, of the Gospel of Luke. What we're looking at today is going to be fairly easy uh, to understand, but don't, don't let that fool you. The significance of what we're doing here is eternal, if you will, and I'm cognizant of that as I speak to you. This is the story of Jesus Christ from Luke's perspective, and it's unique, if you will. Remember, he's a physician. He's a writer of the biggest part of the New Testament, if you combine Luke with Acts. It probably supersedes the words that uh, Paul wrote in all of his letters. His story is uh, full of facts and uh, incidents in the life of Jesus on earth. Don't lose what we're doing here. This is the perspective of redemptive history. And when we look at Luke, let's consider where are we in this consideration of that, redemptive history that is. Where does this lead us? And more importantly, what is your and my place in all of this? You know, don't, don't lose uh, sight of that. One of the privileges I have as an elder of this church is every now and then I get elected to go to the presbytery meeting. It's the same person doesn't go all the time. One of the things that happens there is examination of candidates for the ministry in our presbytery. And uh, one of the people on the examination committee will always talk about their knowledge of the Bible and they stand up and ask them, I don't know if you went through this, brother, uh, outline the book of John for me. You're standing there and you don't have the Bible open, but they expect you to give a breakdown of that book. I've heard somebody say, outline the book of Exodus for me. Boom. <laughs> So we're not asking you too much to think about the outline of Luke, right? Right. I promise you there's no examination committee waiting to ask you these questions. But let me tell you where we've been. In chapter 1, which is probably the longest chapter of Luke, there were 80 verses touched on the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, both being foretold. Mary's visit, that is the mother of Jesus, to Elizabeth, the mother of John, we had Mary's Magnificat, that wonderful exclamation there. Then we had the birth of John the Baptist, and we have Zechariah's prophecy. And, of course, we know about Zechariah's problem, accepting the word of his son's birth. Chapter 2, we had the birth of Jesus. The shepherds and the angels, their reaction to this great uh, incident we learned about Jesus' presentation at the temple and the two prophets that were there. I won't ask you to speak up, but do you remember who they were? They were there. What a, what a picture. They were waiting just for this thing, the coming of the Messiah, those two, a man and a woman there. Then we have the story of Jesus, the boy at age 12 at the temple, and what he did there that is just mind-blowing, uh, Chapter 3, John preparing the way and the genealogy of Jesus. Chapter 4, that great period of time when Christ was tempted in the wilderness and he begins his ministry. 
And uh, right away, he's rejected at Nazareth, where he was from. And he heals a man with a demon. That's a marked uh, incident. Chapter 5, where we left off, he calls his first disciples, cleanses a leper, and heals a paralytic. Now, what's that all about? Well, it is about the ministry that Jesus has come to establish that the Jewish leaders particularly did not understand in their thinking, that, uh, and the common people, in their thinking, this wasn't how the Messiah was to arrive. This wasn't the agenda they thought he should have. Well, chapter 5, where we're going to try to finish up today, let me begin reading in uh, verse 27. I'll just read through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We'll stop there. And if we have time, we'll go past that to the last portion of the fifth chapter. Depends how verbose I get here, but we'll see. There are two clear incidents here in this call of Levi. One is sovereign electing grace in verses 27 and 28. And then Levi's feast that takes up 29 to 32. Or if you will, his reaction to his own conversion. Look what he says. First, think who this is. This is Levi. That's what Mark and Luke call him. We also know him as Matthew, and he penned the first of the Gospels in the order that we have in the Scripture, not necessarily uh, by uh, time. If you heard uh, Pastor Phillips this morning, you know that Matthew was written when? <laughs> he gave us a date, about the 60s or 70s A.D., when he wrote that Gospel. It's very interesting Matthew and our Mark and Luke, I say, call him Levi. We know him as Matthew, the same person, just a different name. He's the same Matthew that's in Matthew chapter nine. It's also the name that was used in the list of the apostles or disciples in Luke six later, we'll see. Also in Mark 10 and in Acts chapter one. Two names. Matthew means gift of God. Isn't it interesting that he's called that most of the time after this portion of scripture here, a gift of God. What do we know about him? What do we know? What do you know about him from what we just read here? He's a tax collector. Does that put him high on the social <laughs> uh, ladder? What we have here is the call, the redeeming call of a wretched sinner. This man, he's a tax collector or another place he's called a publican. That's in Matthew chapter 10. It means the same thing. And he's there doing what he does. He's sitting at the tax booth collecting. Uh, for the Romans. 
Pardon? For the Romans. That's right. I was going to get into that. Oh, okay. <laughs> that thank you. You're right on. Right on, Sharon. Doing this for the Romans. Well, I said he's a wretched sinner. What do you think that's going to do in the eyes of the other Jews, the other people? This guy has forsaken us. He's a traitor. He's collecting money for the Roman Empire. And that's a legitimate criticism of Matthew. He's about that. That's one of the reasons he's called a wretched sinner. He's collecting money for Herod Antipas. And where he's sitting was a route between two countries. And he would have uh, seen a lot of travelers come through, through, through there. Now, uh, this may, you, you can feel, I'm sure, what these people had to put up with here, living where we do in the time in which we live. They collected, he collected from farmers who were bringing goods through. They would have to pay a tariff on that, if you will, from merchants, from uh, caravans that would have come through. There was a poll tax, an income tax, a land tax, a transport tax. Hey, welcome to the USA, right? <laughs> if that's not bad enough, the administration recently hired up something like 50,000 new enforcement agents for the IRS. That's an aside. I don't like to get into politics much. We, this is a thieving sinner. They lined their pockets because the people had to pay what he asked for, and he collected only specifically for Rome what they asked. Anything above that went into his pocket. It'd be like you going into a Walmart or wherever you shop and you pick up something that was 59 cents or what you thought. I and mean, when you get to the counter and say, I'm sorry, that's a dollar four. What? <laughs> that's because the other portion goes in my pocket. And that's what this man was doing. He was, in, in effect, a traitor against his country and his people. He was a traitor because he worked for the enemy. And you heard as well in the sermon this morning of how, how the Romans, when they destroyed uh, part of what happened when, when uh, the land was destroyed, Judah, people were crucified. They were killed. That's what kind of enemy this was. And in the meantime, you're going to line their pockets. You left your people, and now you're going to line uh, your pockets by taking from us and giving. He's a traitor. He's also unclean. Now, why do we say that? Think just a minute. <laughs> why is he unclean? Well, that probably played into it. Who is he dealing with? He's dealing with the Gentiles. These people that came through with goods to sell would not have always all been Jews. They would have been Gentiles. They came through with animals that would have been considered unclean. There might have been somebody who was a tanner. You know what is involved there? You kill an animal and you skin it and you take care to treat the hide and resell it. Most of the time, this would be an unclean thing. You would be touching a dead animal. You would not be able to go to the synagogue. He was just a, a, a wretch of a man, a thieving sinner who was a traitor. He was a thief. He probably lived in a luxurious place compared to most of these other people. David Gooding writes this. He was sinfully rich but socially ostracized. That was his life here. He was a man with an unsavory reputation. 
<laughs> I don't know what would happen, what our opinion would be if an IRS agent showed up at our house. Probably not a real good estimation of them. One Roman writer wrote this. There was once an honest tax collector who was so rare that they saw a monument erected to him. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's how rare he was, an honest tax collector. This one did not have a monument erected to him because of his position as a tax collector. He's sitting at his booth here, collecting people, uh, harassing people to collect from him on their route between Syria and Egypt. And guess what? <laughs> He's called here. He's called by Jesus Christ. Verse 27, Jesus went out, it says, from the previous place, and he saws this tax collector here. And I believe he probably had a contemplative look. This is a sanctified imagination, if you will. <laughs> Jesus looks at him like nobody else looks at people. And he sees here this wretched sinner. And listen to his words. He looked at him sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. What do you think the rabbis, these other people who were going to attack Christ of the religious group, think about this. Christ said to him, follow me. Words used in a vocational sense. He is called, in a saving sense to be sure, salvific, but he's also calling him in a vocational sense. Leave what you're doing. This job put aside and follow me. What a calling. This wretched sinner who's a tax collector is being called to follow Christ and what else? You're going to be an apostle. Whoa. <laughs> Do you ever... Take a deep breath when you think about your own salvation, what God saved you from too. I imagine Matthew did that often. Not only was he saved from his sinful lifestyle, which on the surface, most people would not consider a gross sin, would they? Unless you were a devout Jew, you know? But can you imagine? And not only are you gonna be saved, you're gonna follow me. He's gonna be an apostle. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him, verse 28 says. There is no hesitation on his part. He left everything and followed Jesus Christ. What a salvation. He immediately. What's this called in our circles? This is called effectual calling. <laughs> when God calls us to salvation, that's what's going on here. That word of power to follow me does what it's called, sent out to do. He gives up what he had here, sacrifices. Think about what he's giving up here. This is so far of the disciples that we've learned about. Remember, we learned about Simon and Andrew and James and John previously, a little bit about them, that they were called but guess what? Can you think what's different between the call of Levi and the call of those fishermen? Well, one thing that's different <laughs> that I want you to see 
has to do with their vocation. What were these other four that I just named to you? Fishermen. They could always go back to that. And if you remember what happened in John 21, Jesus has come back. He's been resurrected from the dead and he's walking along the seashore and sees these fishermen who were his disciples. They had returned to that. And Jesus (laughs) enlightens them even further. Levi had shut the door on returning to be a tax collector for Rome when he went to follow Jesus Christ. Think of how much he gave up. Let me ask you, what have you given up to follow Jesus? What? You don't have to tell tell me all that you went through. Maybe some of you did. I know we have in a Uh, Another part of our congregation, a woman who gave up her Jewish upbringing to follow Jesus. Could not have been easy. What have you given up to follow Jesus? (laughs) Along with that, hand in hand, are you holding on to anything that you should give up to follow Jesus Christ? Matthew gave up everything. It's, uh, you know, sometimes the surrender is instantaneous like it was here. Sometimes it's more gradual. Uh, I don't know what your situation is, but just think about that. What did you give up? Is there anything you're holding on to? And and just for purposes of sanctification, how sudden was your conversion? But the truth of the matter is, whether it was sudden, instantaneous, or took a longer period of time, Jesus' call is indissoluble. There's no going back. There's an old gospel song like that, isn't there? No turning back, no turning back. (laughs) We don't sing that here. I can't even remember what the name of the song is. But that's what it, what's, what's involved in this. The gospel message is that everything else has changed, including your vocation, your walk from now on. This is the sacrifice. So what Jesus is doing is adding Levi to his motley crew of disciples. Now think of that. Think of your own election. And, and that's what's involved here. Besides effectual calling or hand in hand with that, we see election here. Christ called him. What did he have to offer Jesus Christ? Nothing. Christ wouldn't want his money. He surely didn't want the lifestyle that he was living. He had nothing. John fifteen sixteen surely rings true. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And our words are, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's what took place here. That's what's taken place in our lives if we're truly believers. Let me give you the meaning of effectual calling from our Westminster Standards. It is the work of God's spirit whereby convincing of us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You know, that took place in this instant here. It may not have registered in the mind of Levi slash Matthew, but that is what took place. And he followed him. We read at the end of verse 28. That word followed is a Greek active participle, I'm sorry, which means a continuous ongoing action. It didn't stop 
when they got to the next town. He would follow him forever, the rest of his life. You see the power of Jesus and the power of God's call, his electing grace. I hope that encourages you to pray. Do any of you pray for any unsaved people in particular? Maybe you keep a list uh, like some people do. Never despair. Never despair of someone's salvation that you're praying for. Look at the wretches in scripture that Jesus calls. Levi rose, he turned, and he followed Jesus Christ. He left everything behind. He gave up dishonesty, selfishness. He gave up this prestige of all that he had. <laughs> Before he did this, though, he uses some of it that we'll see in a minute. You know, he not only knew, he had known Jesus before by the, you know, history around him. He heard of him as a great prophet and teacher. But at this moment, he knew him as the savior of mankind who came to save him. I don't know how he would have felt, but think of all that he left and think of what you should have left and I should have left to follow him. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? What happened with him? <laughs> and being sorrowful, he walked off and returned. This isn't everyone's story here, but it is the story of Matthew, Levi. What hope we should gather from this? What, how we ought to have our prayers enlivened by this. Let's take a moment to think of all the great religions or some of the great religions of the world, just for a moment. Buddhism. You heard of that? You know what goes on there. What they do is seek nirvana, the equivalent of heaven, I suppose, by an eightfold path. Muslims, there's the five pillars of Islam that they seek to adopt and, and follow. In Mormonism, which almost smacks of legitimacy in some ways, but we need to be careful. Baptism is important. The Mormon church is very, very important. Joseph Smith and his successors as prophets are important. We need to follow their teachings. And there are certain temple ceremonies that have to be done. Jehovah's Witnesses, they're very strong on morality of a type. They go door to door proselytizing. They do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ like we're seeing here. And they also celebrate a number of special holidays. They do not honor country. I remember in high school, a classmate of mine would not pledge the flag when we had that. That was way long ago <laughs> when you pledged the flag. They would not do that. Roman Catholics, they have to have the mass, the sacraments, the prayers, a number of other things, good works that matter. And they have to follow the tradition of the church. What do each of these have in common? Anything you can come up with? Works. Works, yeah. Each one of these. What did Matthew do to gain salvation? <laughs> Squat, pardon that vernacular. Nothing. Zilch, zero. He was effectually called. It was all by the grace of Jesus Christ. I, sometimes we don't think about this. I didn't think about it much before I started studying Luke. We often gravitate toward Acts in chapters 9 and 10 when we see a guy named Saul 
called by effectual grace in a dramatic way. Here, it's just the spoken powerful word of God that ignites belief in Matthew's soul, that convinces him to leave all of this behind. Israel was like these other religions here at this time, especially in the religious leaders. Their religion had degenerated into works. It was a horrible thing, and and I'll uh, outline that later when we get past this and get into fasting. Romans 9, we read this. But that Israel, that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, talking about works, did not succeed in reaching that law. That's what was written by Paul in Romans. Seeking their righteousness by the keeping of the law, they did not reach it. None of us would. You know, I'm not teaching you anything you don't already know here. But, you know, even today we probably <laughs> abandon the, wall, the law in something we did or said. You will not reach that. And he was called by the grace of God. Well, secondly, look what happens. He's called by Jesus. Powerful call. What does he do? <laughs> he's called, he's, he's a believer. What does he do? He hosts a party. <laughs> I didn't do that when I became a Christian. Uh, I was hosted by some people when I became a Christian that was very kind. You know, great, well, excuse me, a great welcoming to me. And uh, we celebrated But he celebrates here. Levi made a great feast in his house. And look who he invited. A large company of tax collectors and others. They were reclining at table with them. Well, with the little knowledge you have or the great knowledge you have of the scripture, what's going on when they reclined at table? They were going to (laughs) eat. They were going to seriously chow down. This wasn't chips and dips and a cold drink. (laughs) Welcome to dinner. Pass around the dishes. Let's uh, lean here and have a great feast. I don't know what's going on here. I believe it could be an appreciation for what Jesus did in saving him. If it was, and I can't prove that, look how quickly that came to mind in the life of this man. We don't have any passage of time here to speak of, and he is celebrating. What marvelous grace Jesus shows to him. What a turnabout in his life. And I believe we might have something else here too. Look who comes. A large company of tax collectors and others and others. That doesn't mean they were great people, the others. This was the lower strata of people that were invited to this meal. The lower strata. And they were reclining if you will, 'er ne'er-do-wells, ne'er-do-wells. Well, this speaks uh, a lot to us, and I'll jump on that in a minute. What honor is given to these people that they were called in to this dinner, and what honor to Jesus Christ? It's a feast with a band of sinners, perhaps an evangelical, evangelistic outreach to sinners. I trust it was. J.C. Ryle wrote this, A converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. (laughs) Do you witness to anybody? Do I? I, When I think about it, I pray for opportunities to do this. I don't get enough. I had one brief one this past week, but uh, there's so many more that we need to look for. These people were in the same boat that Matthew had just left. 
They were tax collectors. Can you imagine what he would have said to them? <laughs> Come, I want to show you something. I want to tell you why you shouldn't be a tax collector anymore. What? <laughs> he had a witness for Jesus Christ almost immediately here in giving this feast. There was joy. The rebirth here of an immortal soul or the birth, if you will, of an immortal soul. Matthew was now a child of the king, no longer beholden to Rome. He was now a servant of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Great joy. You remember what happened, we'll get to it some other Sunday down the road in Luke 15. You know what the story is there, don't you? It's the story of the prodigal son. And the older brother just got all bent out of shape when dad wanted to have a party for the prodigal son when he came back. And we read in 1532, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We ought to celebrate this kind of thing. We ought to be cheering, patting people on the back, feeding them. What does that say about our ministry of hospitality? Have you ever had anybody unsavory come to your table at home? Somebody that you wouldn't ordinarily go out and have dinner with? Have you ever invited any of the so-called dregs of the world to your house or to a restaurant to fellowship over a meal with them? It might not be fellowship in the Lord initially, but certainly that's what you're looking to do. Would you have had any ne'er-do-wells come to your house? Well, look what happens in verse 30 <laughs> after this. Whoops, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What's the point of this? What's going on here? First of all, look what is, is said at the beginning of the verse. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled where? At his disciples. They don't go to Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make you wonder why? Why? Let's go to these people who are more like us, the disciples. They're just men. We just saw one get up and leave his table and his profession. Let's ask them what's going on. Let's accuse them. But there were more sinister intentions involved in these questions here. They've come to spoil this party. They've come to put uh, the damper on what's going on here. These Pharisees, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Friends, if we didn't do this, how many of us would have been brought to saving faith? We, when we were sinners, we're not all that desirable to be around. And some of us who don't have a high standard of living may have lived in a less than what you think is great house or anything and don't have a great job, a prestige in the neighborhood. But what if nobody had spoken to you about Jesus Christ? Why, can you imagine what's going on here? They grumbled, they complained of the, the company the disciples kept. Wow, wow. I probably, probably, I can't prove that from scripture, but I, I don't, probably because I think early on they, they realized 
when they were dealing with Christ, they were dealing with someone otherworldly who had more power than they knew of. So sure, you might say to these disciples, look, you're Jews, what's going on? You know, why are you hanging out there? Come on back, <laughs> come on back. Yes, you're very, very likely right, yeah. But it's interesting, they complain to them. <clears throat> I don't know what's going on exactly, but they present this case that you should be avoiding this contamination with these kind of people. Reminds me of when you're rearing your children. You try to protect them, and this is a give and take situation. I don't want you running around with Billy, Bobby, or who else, right? You tell your children that, and for good reason. But then you get a little further along and you realize, you know, they need to interact with sinners. So I need to be teaching them how to interact with sinners. It's one of the dilemmas of being a parent, you know. You want to protect your children. You, and, and you face this same dilemma when you send them off to college, don't you? I don't want your mind being flooded with, uh, first of all, you're, you're going to be told about evolution and then all down the line about other things. And nowadays our kids have so many things to confuse them sexually with transgender and everything. You want to protect them. You need to. And these disciples, people of our own, they need to be protected. But there also has to be an interface if we're going to bring these people to the Lord. It calls for more wisdom than I have, so I've prayed a lot as a parent, <laughs> still do. I told one of my sons we were out to eat not too long ago, I said, uh, one of the things you realize quickly, son, is that now that you're a parent, it never stops. You will be a parent until you're gone or they're gone. It's a lifetime commitment, whether you want to face up to it or not. So there, there needs to be some decision here made about who you're going <laughs> to interact with, but there needs to be wisdom from on high. But the ultimate answer is you will not isolate yourself from sinners or you'll be doing uh, something contrary to the will of God. But there's a proper and right way to do it. But the Pharisees believed apparently in salvation by separation. If you will just do this... And you can, if you don't believe me, read the Talmud sometime. You can get a copy, I think, maybe from the library. I don't. In addition to their teaching on the Sabbath, which we'll get into eventually here, they added, besides the commandment in Exodus 20, 594 regulations about the Sabbath and how to properly keep it. That's the mindset of these people who were coming and saying, you're eating with tax collectors and other sinners, scoundrels. Why are you doing this? They didn't have the affrontery to go before Jesus at this point. They believe in salvation by separation. That wasn't the way of our Lord. And Levi has aggravated that problem by having this banquet. We had a blessed time last Sunday, didn't we? A fellowship meal. <laughs> It would have been nice if one of us had a visitor with us last Sunday and said, look, we're going to eat together today. Don't go home yet. Come on with me. I want you to come down here and meet some wonderful folks, and many of them know how to cook well. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? Uh, we didn't have that. Thank Joel. He's not here. He especially got things rolling on that. It was a blessed time of fellowship, and that is important. That is important. Levi 
who worked for Rome, who was a cheat, a shyster, who was excommunicated from the synagogue, is having this meal here with you disciples? What's going on? What's going on? He's called and then he gives a feast. It's like they said, how could you do this? How could you? You people, you're Jews. What's going on? What was their answer to the question? What is the answer to the question? Jesus answered them. Who? Jesus answered them. This should encourage you in your prayer life. You know, when no one else has your back, believer, Jesus does. When no one else can get you through the trials of life that you face, whether it's a disease or a hundred other things, our God is with us. And he stands up and answers these people. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What an answer. (laughs) It's as if he said, don't you know these people have to be exposed to me? I am the one with the words of life. Not you, me. They need to be exposed to me. That's why we're having this dinner for them. They appear to murmur, that is the Pharisees, to murmur and grumble over this. It's over good and godly work that is going on that they're grumbling here. Fascinating. I would ask you in a rhetorical way, if you will, Do you feel this way? Do you get jealous of other believers who have success in life, maybe spiritually? I hope we don't. We ought to bless God for them being used and move on. Get in step. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Follow his teaching. That's what the disciples were doing. But these socially conservative teachers of the law who were called Pharisees, Refuse to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what they're doing here. They do not believe this. This is the one that if they were truly biblical scholars, this is the one, Jesus, that they were looking for from ancient time. The one who is to come all the way back 700, 800 years before when Isaiah proclaimed the message of the coming of the Messiah when Hosea did, when Zephaniah did. And they missed it right there in front of them and they missed it. Man, they were eating and drinking these disciples with the wrong crowd. Do you know the significance of a meal in Eastern countries, especially at this time? This was very important to have a meal like this. Uh, Can you think of some other opportunities or instances of this? One great one was the Last Supper when our Lord sat with his disciples and he broke bread and he shared the cup with them. This was a significant thing, especially in ancient Israel. To have someone sit down with you uh, to have a meal was important. It's important for you to be hospitable. And I would say it's important for us today to be hospitable. This declared to them that you were at peace with them. You want to sit down and share with them. You want to enter into spiritual relationship with them. Besides the Last Supper, think back to the book of Judges when these men, who were probably angels, came to Manoah, or like I like to say, Mrs. Manoah, 
the wife of Manoah to speak to her about having a child who would end up being who? Gideon down the road. She offers to prepare them a meal. And it happens other times in the Old Testament, numerous times. This was important. Why would you have these people of the spies trades who weren't even allowed in the synagogue come and eat with you? Because Jesus said that was <laughs> the way it should be done. Think of his ministry when he approached the woman at the well. Who was she? She was a Samaritan, a despised. On top of that, she was a woman. You would not be seen publicly discoursing with her in the city square in that time. But Jesus went to her. The result was she was converted and she went back to the other Samaritans and said, come, meet the one who tell, told me everything. He just spoke everything out of nowhere, told me everything. Jesus and the disciples are guilty by association. You know, that could be in your life sometime. I almost pray that it is, <laughs> that you'll be guilty by association because you're among some sinners presenting the word of God, witnessing. It's what we're doing when we go out. Our brother goes out every Thursday with a number of people. It's what we're doing when we go to the prison and that ministry there. And it is, it is a sobering thing to walk into that prison, let me tell you, to hear the door clang behind you and, and there's a certain vulnerability that presents itself, you know? But that's what we're called to do. And that's what the disciples are doing here. You see, really, Jesus is the guest of honor in this situation. And the Pharisees will never understand that. They won't. They went to make disciples. They need to go and learn what he said in Matthew chapter nine. I deserve mercy and not sacrifice. Your rituals, your traditions don't mean much. I desire mercy. Show yourself to be merciful like the God that you say you serve. Wesley, if you remember in the 1700s, wonderful minister in England, was not allowed after a period of time to go into the churches anymore because of the kind of people that he was witnessing to. What did he do? He didn't stop preaching. He preached in graveyards, he went to mines, he went out in the fields, much like Whitfield did. Well, it wasn't but about 100 years later, another man sought to bring derelicts, if you will, into the church and he was despised and cast out. What did he do? His name was William Booth. Do you remember what he did? He established the Salvation Army and went on witnessing for the sake of the gospel. Well, let me quickly wind up here. Jesus answers their objections in verses 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Healthy people don't necessarily need a doctor, although I'm not against well care checks, okay? <laughs> but the sick person definitely does. We don't blame a plumber for having his hands dirty in the sewer, do we? He's there to fix the problem. Who gets on the case of a mortician because he deals with corpses? Nobody, that's what he's there for. Jesus is saying, it's the sick that need a physician. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. 
Jesus brings salvation by association, not by segregation. What a day it is. He's taking a dig at them in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's as if he said, so which side are you on, Pharisees? Which side are you on? Let me finish up. You know, Jesus had already performed some miracles, but now he adds a very significant one in the call of Matthew slash Levi for a permanent radical change of mind and life. And he is able to do it in the presence of these unbelieving witnesses. Robert Munger has written this, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> That's our requirement for membership, to be unworthy. That's the requirement of these who have come to eat. They are unworthy. Why wouldn't we have them? Why wouldn't we? Do you have any questions or comments? So I guess I was a little verbose. The Pharisees also knew they didn't realize that. Absolutely. They were just sick and worse. Yeah. You know what's hopeful? Uh, you remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was a Pharisee. And there's another one I can't remember right now by name. Some did get converted. What a gracious story it is. Thank you. Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? Thank you. <laughs> hey, you haven't lost a thing now that you've gained another year, have you? Thank God. <laughs> was Nicodemus a Pharisee or a Sadducee? I think he was a Pharisee. Well, let me dismiss this in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the words of truth. We pray that you'd bless these words to us. Make us more like Jesus Christ. Father, make us like Levi. Help us to go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. May we be true witnesses to the truth of the gospel true witnesses of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we praise you that we have been made to see, that we have been called and found grace in a time when we needed it, a time of unbelief. Bless the remainder of this day for your honor and glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen.